0: The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.church. Good morning, Bethlehem. Our scripture this morning is from 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 7 through 11. You can turn with me there. And for our sermon, I want to encourage you, keep it up in front of you. We're going to be talking about the Bible. Let's have it open and looking at it as we go. 1 Peter chapter 4, uh, beginning with verse 7. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. I have to say, I never heard the word oldster before. So, Chuck, whoever, you just coined the word. And I didn't know that I was an oldster because I love that song. When I walked in this morning to get mic'd up, that was the song that was playing. And I became very emotional because to preach this sermon. Right after that song reminds me of all the grace that God has poured out in my life since I was a child. We used to sing that song. And if anyone from Mandarin Baptist Church of Pasadena is watching this morning, we used to sing that song every summer when we went and served on short-term trips. Let me be your servant. I, I love that. So here we are in our current series, Don't Waste Your Trials. And we're going through the book of 1 Peter. Three times in this letter, Peter uses the word telos, end, far away, the end. The first times at the beginning of the book, chapter 1, verse 9, Peter starts out by addressing the church like this. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him. And rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining, here it comes, the outcome, the telos, the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Later, just probably hear about it next week, verse 17, chapter 4, Peter again references the end by saying, for it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God, and if it begins with us, What will be the outcome, the telos, the end for those who do not obey the gospel of God? So our passage this morning begins with the same word. The end of all things is at hand. So what's going on here? What is Peter trying to tell us? This reminded me of a practice that I heard from Paul Poteet, one of our pastors here at the downtown campus. Of something he does um, when he disciples young men. I know that many of you in this room were discipled personally by Paul Poteet as well. Paul likes to take a walk with the young men that he's discipling. He'll do it in a graveyard. And as they pass by each and every tombstone, every tombstone has two dates and a dash a date of birth, a date of death, and a dash. And Paul tells them, live for the dash. Hebrews tells us it is appointed for everyone to die. And then after that, the judgment. So this is what Peter is setting us up with. Remember, the end is coming. We heard Peter say in verse 5 from last week, Pastor Jason preaching, they, meaning the Gentiles that indulge in the flesh, They will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. The end is coming. The end is coming. When each of us will go before God to be judged by him. And because God is a just and holy and perfect God, and because we are sinners going before God in judgment is a terrifying thought unless the verdict the outcome of that judgment over your life has already been pronounced and it's not innocent it's it's guilty but again the punishment for that verdict has also already been paid by Christ For those that are in Christ, there is no punishment awaiting at judgment. So, the end to go to God is to go and be with our Father who loves us. Amen? Amen. Pastor Jason reminded us last week that because the end is coming, we need to be what? Armed with suffering so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions but for the will of God. So our passage that we're looking at this morning will answer this question. What does it look like for us to live not for human passions but for the will of God? As we close out this particular section of 1 Peter, how do we behave in a hostile world? We're looking now at how do we treat each other in this world. So, let me pray. Father, you are our helper. You are a just judge. And you have sent Jesus to be the payment for our sins. So, as we come to you, we come to you as your children. We delight in being together. We delight in the reading of your word, even with a word like the end of all things is at hand. So help us now as we listen to your word, as we think about your word together, and grow in our love for you and for each other. In Jesus' name, amen. So again, the passage begins, the end of all things is at hand. When you hear this, what is your immediate reaction? Some people hear that and they panic. They go right into emergency mode. So I was, uh, I think, in college during Y2K. You guys remember Y2K? We all thought that when the computer turned from 1999 to 2000, the whole world was going to end. Some of us are still eating the canned beans that we bought in 1999. Maybe a better example is Y2K20, This year, remember when we heard there was the novel coronavirus? So, of course, we all went to Costco and bought up all the toilet paper. Uh, Don't look at your neighbor at this point. Just look down at your well-supplied navel. Others might hear, the end of all things is at hand. And they just give up. We find in Scripture the age-old mantra For giving up. Let's eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. In other words, we can't stop the end from coming, so we may as well enjoy ourselves or sit back because nothing really matters. We may as well use up all the toilet paper today. We're not doing any flushing tomorrow. (laughs) But neither of those reactions, panic or giving up, are the right reactions. Peter's command is neither frenetic panicking or lazily giving up. His command is this, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Before I move away or on from the thought that the end of all things is at hand, let me share a reflection that I really have been thinking about uh, for the past couple weeks. Uh, Isn't this a sorrowful way to live? Always to remember the end of all things is at hand. Is this what the Christian life is about? Is the kingdom of God a looming gray cloud waiting to rain down doom and gloom? What about joy and glory and happiness? I got to spend some time with Pastor Tim Kane. He's one of our church planters, Kaleo Church in El Cajon, near San Diego, as well as Pastor Richie Stark. Two Fridays ago, we attended, right here in this room, Catherine Stokes' funeral service together. And as we drove to the gravesite, we talked together, and Tim reminded us of this peculiar verse. You can turn with me there if you'd like. Ecclesiastes chapter 7, the f- uh, verses 2 to 4. Let me read it for you. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughing. For by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning. But the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. What does that mean? Isn't heaven the eternal feast, the supper, the marriage supper of the Lamb? Isn't, the, isn't glory the place of laughter and mirth? Why does the Bible teach us that mourning and sadness are better than feasting and laughter? Bethlehem, ours is the dusk and not yet the morning. All of creation is groaning. Can you hear it? Can you feel it grinding at your bones? The end of all things is at hand. We are living in a state of waiting, waiting for justice, waiting for rescue, waiting for for the resurrection of the dead, waiting for Jesus to return. That is our reality. So all of our laughter and joy and feasting, which we do do together as believers, is borrowed from what is coming. To drown ourselves with food and laughter and wine, and entertainment is to block out the reality that the end of all things is at hand. Judgment for unbelievers is coming. Bodily death for all people is coming. But to face our reality head on brings us a deep, deep peace and joy. Why? Because we know that with the end of the age. For those that are in Christ, there's not a gray cloud of impending doom, but a bursting cloud of glory. Impending glory is coming for us. We remember that after the dusk comes the dawn, and with it unspeakable joy. So back To the first chapter, though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. We long for the day when every tear is wiped away. We long for the day when every unjust act is avenged by God and he will avenge us. We long for the day when every sorrow is forgotten. We long for the day when every life lost in Christ is resurrected. That is our hope, especially behind this pulpit, all the sorrow and loss that we have known as a body. Resurrection. We had our our hope in there. We long for the day when we see Christ face to face. And so, we love to say here, We are sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. This is where we live, Bethlehem. There's no need to run away from the end. Instead, be self controlled and sober minded for the sake of your prayers. Look down again, 1 Peter 4, verse 8. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. There are so many, I actually looked in Google, there are so many different lifestyle magazines today. There's Country Living Magazine, uh, Outdoor Living Magazine, Cabin Living Magazine, there's even a Diabetic Living Magazine, you got to stay up with the trends. Uh, We need a lifestyle magazine called End of All Things Living Magazine. Wouldn't it be helpful to have a subscription to that? Maybe there'd be a great recipe in there for tribulation truffles, something like that. What does it look like, right, what does it look like in the magazine um, to live our lives when the Bible tells us the end of all things is at hand? Well, we don't have a magazine, but we do have the next four verses. And the next four verses can tell us more about end of all things living then Martha Stewart Living Magazine can tell you about uh, insider trading. So in verses <laughs> 8 through 11, Peter expounds on what it looks like to be self-controlled and sober-minded, right? So the end of all things is at hand, don't panic, don't give up, be sober-minded, be self-controlled for the sake of your prayers. What, what does that look like? What actions are associated with this internal attitude? Peter writes, above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Peter lays out for us a banner action that captures the essence of end of all things living. Keep loving one another earnestly. The emphasis here in this particular command is just slightly different than what's called the new commandment from Jesus in chapter 13. And I don't want you to miss this. That's my impersonation, Pastor Jason. Thank you, Steve. I don't want you to miss this, especially in this tumultuous time. Here is a brief history. So what I want to do, I've, I've, I'm not, I've not gone through every single passage about love. That would take the whole, the whole time but I've called out some highlights. The history of loving one another in the Old and the New Testament. It begins way back in Leviticus 9, verse 19. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus, in chapter 5, then expands that idea. You have heard it said that you should love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those that persecute you. So love your neighbor, expanded by Jesus to love your enemies as well. Then Jesus raises the importance of that particular command, love your neighbor. When he's asked, what's the greatest commandment? He gives not just the greatest commandment, but with it, attached, unsolicited. It's not just one commandment, it is two. Jesus raises love your neighbor to the second highest commandment. And then in John 13, as I just mentioned, Jesus gives us the new commandment. Listen to this. A new command I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. There's a couple things new here, right? What's new about the new commandment? Well, first of all, it's given by Jesus. And he's creating the church. And suddenly there's a one another not just a neighbor, but there's a one another to love. And the standard has changed, right? The old standard, how much should I love you? Love your neighbor as yourself, as you love yourself. So here's the standard. But Jesus says, love one another way more, as I have loved you. So just, I just want to step away from our text just for one second here and say this. Jesus' love for you is way more intense and powerful than your love for yourself. That's the standard by which now we love one another. In Romans 12, Paul takes that love that Jesus have for us and commands us, love one another with a brotherly affection, bringing the love of Jesus into the family of God. Galatians 5.14, Paul tells us this, The whole law is fulfilled in one word, that you should love your neighbor as yourself. And then finally, back to our passage this morning, 1 Peter 4.8. Peter teaches us to endure in our love. So listen to this. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly. The emphasis here is on both the persistence of our love, keep going. Keep going. Persist. And it's in the quality of our love. Keep loving one another earnestly. Peter is warning us against two kinds of fatigue when it comes to loving one another. The first fatigue is our endurance. So it's, it's easy to love someone in the first minute that you meet them hi, welcome, come in, can I get you some coffee? Um, but after a little while, even with a good friend, you, you might start to kind of run out of things to talk about. You might start feeling like you want to get going. So you start saying things like, well, it's, it's been really great to connect with you. And they're not getting the hint. Uh, and that's why Peter says, uh, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. It's in our nature that our love for each other grows tired. We grow tired. We grow weary of loving one another. That's why Peter is reminding us and commanding us, persist in your love. Persist in your love of each other over a course, uh, of a, uh, over the course of a longer than expected visit, over the course of a longer than expected pandemic. What, what have you guys felt in this? This pandemic is just dragging on and on and on. Well, Don't forget, keep loving each other through it. Over the course of a longer than expected work from home order. For those of you that maybe don't have an office to work in and you've got little children around, that command to keep loving each other gets harder and harder every day. But press on over the course of a longer-than-expected unemployment or sickness or quarrel, and in our day, over the course of a longer and more difficult-than-expected conversation about ethnic harmony. Hear this, Bethlehem. Keep loving one another. Secondly, our love for one another begins to fatigue in fervor, in passion. I remember meeting Catherine at Moody Bible Institute, probably not the best example here to go to my marriage, right? Like, what am I thinking? Okay. Um, She used to walk around. There's like this student plaza, Richie, remember that, where everyone hangs out? And she used to walk around barefoot. And I thought, wow, she's so carefree and lighthearted. And then after we got married, I thought, wow, she's going to step on a nail and get tetanus. How irresponsible. (laughs) But Peter tells us, keep loving one another earnestly. Renew your love for one another. Continue to connect and know each other. Keep loving one another earnestly. In the next line, Peter tells us why we ought to love each other earnestly. So look down again at your text. Here's the statement clause. Since love covers a multitude of sins. We love it when our sins are covered, don't we? Uh, we've loved it since creation. Um, no one knows what kind of fruit Adam and Eve took a bite of because Adam chucked that thing across the garden, right? He wanted to get rid of the evidence. He had to hide. And then it was, I'm naked. Cover me. Cover me. Hand me that leaf. Even in this creation narrative, we have a picture of what it means that love covers a multitude of sin. When we sin against one another, really, when we sin against God, the reality of our nature is laid bare for everyone to see, right? We feel the nakedness. Everything we want to believe about ourselves becomes harder. To believe that we are basically good, that our sins are, you know, we had good intentions. They're just mistakes. If we weren't under so much pressure, we wouldn't mess up so much. We try to tell ourselves that our deepest nature is not evil, but good. But the presence and the persistence of sin in our life reminds us we are always living in rebellion to God. So as we strive to keep loving one another earnestly, our harmony is constantly interrupted by our sin. We are sinners, and we know that we need true coverings. So in Christ, God provides this for us. In the garden, when God found that Adam and Eve had sinned, what does he do? He sees their feeble attempt to cover themselves with leaves and helps them. He kills a lamb and takes its skin and puts it and covers Adam and Eve in the same way to cover our sin. God killed Jesus and gives us his righteousness as a covering for our nakedness and our shame. Continuing... Keeping on in loving each other earnestly means extending, offering the welcome, the cover of Christ to one another. In this last part of our text, Peter gets very practical with how we live for the rest of the time in the flesh, not for human passions, but for the will of God. So look down again. I'll read from verse 9. And ever. Amen. So I I know I've gone here before in this pulpit with all of you, but I'd like to share this again. Um, As many of you can unfortunately tell, um, exegetical preaching is not my main gift. Dumb jokes, definitely. But I I am not gifted in the way that Pastor Jason, um, men like Brian Tabb, are gifted. I was so helped by them and their feedback to me on this sermon. Focusing academically on books and articles is just not what gets me going. And I'm sorry to say that. Um, I'm a hands-on person. I love to build things. I love to fix machines. I love to cook. We tell kids not to play with their food. That's the wrong thing. Kids, play with your food. You'll get really good at it. Um, does not being an academic... But instead, being a hands on person, make me less of a Christian? Because the academic passions and gifts are not mine, am I therefore less valuable in the kingdom of God? You you gotta ask yourself that. Gotta ask yourself, and we gotta ask that of our church culture. Does God think less of me than he does a New Testament scholar? This has always been a real struggle for me at Bethlehem as a pastor. I've had this conversation with I think all the pastoral staff a dozen times, and I think they're sick of it. I've always wondered should should I really be a pastor here? I think I should be a deacon because I love I love to do things. I love to serve. I love to make things happen. I'm more focused on doing than I am on teaching. Peter, in our verse this morning, is telling us that the grace of God is varied. It's varied. God gives gifts of speaking as well as serving. The main thrust here in this verse is not what kind of gift you have, but that all the gifts, whatever your gifts are, they all come from God. And they're all used to glorify God. And we should all praise God because of all of the varied gifts that he gives to the church. Using our gifts to speak the oracles of God and to serve one another is how, it is how we keep loving one another earnestly. When you think about ways to serve the church, I get phone calls like this all the time. I want to serve. What can I do? I want to serve. What can I do? Where can I serve? I got a group. I got 20 people. I got 10 people. I got five people. They call me, right? And then all the other pastors say, oh, well, ask Ming Jin. He'll tell you what to do. Uh, it's natural to begin by looking at the published needs, right? So we go to the weekly or the website and we say, well, what, you know, what can I do? How can I serve? Um, like we need greeters for Sunday morning. Right? Our nursery right below us they need volunteers. Many times, I will need dishwashers in the kitchen to work with me. But over the years, I've become that I've become convinced that serving in the strength that God supplies. I've always thought of that as uh, the spiritual. Uh, endurance to do it, the, the physical energy, like the calories and the body that he gives us and the, the energy that we have, that is the strength that God supplies. So use that strength and go and serve. But I think another application of that word is the strengths, the personal strengths that God has given you. You might desire to serve and see needs in an area that you could do, right? Any of you could wash the dishes, but doesn't match your strengths. Is that how the grace of God has been given to you? If you see me asking for help in the kitchen, but you don't like kitchen work, that's okay. Maybe God has gifted you with a love for cradling infants and praying over them. Go and do that. Serve in your strength. Maybe God has gifted you with a love for communication through graphic art. Serve the church and serve your neighbors through that gift that you have. Maybe you can fix anything without even watching YouTube. Go and do that. And then I just scribble this in. This gets really dangerous when you go off uh, manuscript and, uh, but man, when we sang that song together, I think, let me address our culture here. We are a culture that doesn't have any needs. I'm fine. I'm fine, right? I'm fine. How are you? I'm fine. How are you? Fine. Great. We're all fine. Right? Everyone's fine. No one ever has any needs here, right? And it's almost like this big shameful thing. If you have a need, guys, we are made of flesh. One tiny thing can break us open, right? We are weak. We know that about each other. Let's not always be so dang needless here at Bethlehem, right? Well, how does that song go? Pray that God might give me grace to let you be my servant too. That is a broken part of our culture here, that we have no needs. It's okay to have needs. We don't shame one another. I have needs. Pray that God might give me grace to let you be my servant too. So here goes some of my reward in heaven, but it's worth it to share with you some of my summer adventures. I, I want you to know, what, what does one of your pastors do um, here. Again, I I just, I love to serve. My neighbors across the street, their air conditioner went out and they didn't know how to uh, replace it. So I went over to their place and helped them to replace their air conditioner. Um, Another neighbor, they had a garbage disposal that started leaking. So I went over and I remove the garbage disposal, and put in just a regular drain line. Had help from Paul Poteet. He reminded me, make sure it's at a, at a slant so the water keeps running. Um, I went to visit a Bethlehem family who had a clog in their bathtub. So instead of waiting for the plumber and, and giving him hundreds of dollars, I just took the P-trap apart and I snaked it and we cleared out the sewer line. Another Bethlehem member had a drip from their ceiling. So I went over to look for it and we sealed up the bathtub and stopped the leak. Um, the neighbor behind me, uh, his gutter had f- just clogged up and got so heavy, it was starting to rip the, the side of the house off. So I went over and took the gutter off. I have no idea what I'm doing, right? I'm just, I took it off, and I'm like, I got way in over my head. I had to call John Schrant and Terry Winch. Thank you, guys, for coming. And they helped me, and we got it back together, and I Hope it holds. I have no idea. Um, A friend of mine needed new hardware hung on the back of their mirror because it was so heavy. So I brought over my toolkit and put on some new wires. And when friends of mine are going through a hard time, I love bringing them a 13-pound smoked brisket or a 10-pound roasted pork leg. I don't know of a better way to say to them that I love them. And that I care for them than to bring them 23 pounds of meat. Use your gifts in the strength that God supplies. Use your gifts. If you don't know what your gift is, live. Practice. Discover. Do stuff. Find out what you're good at. Find out what you're bad at. And use your gifts, Bethlehem. There are so many of you in here. There are so many of you watching. Use your gifts. Be stewards of the talents that God has given you. Peter ends our passage this way. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. This verse means so much to me. I want to explain it to you this way. 20 years ago, when I had just graduated from Moody, I was still living in Chicago. I went to the bookstore there, and I bought a copy of Desiring God by Pastor John Piper. I still have it in my office upstairs. What I read there changed my whole life. You see, all my life, I've always been wired to serve. I see needs around me, and I move toward them. I want to meet those needs. You're hungry? Let me make you some ramen. If you're thirsty, here's a LaCroix. You're moving? Let me tell you about how I recently injured my back pretty badly. (laughs) But as a young adult, I was stuck in a logical loop that I didn't understand how to escape. This is how it went. In my zeal and desire and love for neighbor and God, I would see a need and I would move toward the need and I would help the person and do the deed and I would just feel so happy and joyful and satisfied in doing it. But then I would think, if I'm feeling this good about doing that because of my love for God and neighbor, I really must be doing it for myself. And so I'd condemn myself. I just thought, gosh, I I wish I could serve God with a pure heart, Not not after my own satisfaction. So when Pastor John taught me that God is actually most glorified in me when I am most satisfied in using my gifts to serve others, I, I, I really feel like that's when my life in Christ began. I was released from condemnation. I can actually glorify God through my satisfaction in him. The more I used my gifts, the more satisfied I became in God and the more glorified he is in me. And then when I kept reading, and Pastor John quoted this, the joy of the Lord, that joy that I'm feeling, is my strength. Oh man, I found something that I can now do forever. This is exactly what Peter delivers to us this morning. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. So Bethlehem, this is end of all things living. Keep loving one another earnestly. Show hospitality to one another Speak the oracles of God to one another. Serve one another with the strength that God supplies. This is how we live with one another when the end of all things is at hand. Let me pray. Father, it's with so much delight that we read your word because your word instructs us and frees us. It helps us to know when the end of all things is upon us, what are we to do? Help us not to go into friend, a frenzied panic. Help us not to give up. Help us not to just sit around waiting for the end. Help us to instead be sober minded, self controlled for the sake of our prayers. Help us to continue pressing on, loving one another earnestly, speaking to one another the oracles of God, serving each other with the strength that you give us. Be glorified in us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others